Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 164, Don't Believe Your Map. Having traversed the western and northern lands, we now cross the Danube into Roman territory. I've confessed on this show before that one of the things that got me into Byzantine history was the Penguin Atlas series by Colin McEverdy. Over the course of its pages, I watched the Eastern Roman Empire lose much of its territory, then slowly crawl back, until finally, in 1025 AD, boom. Amazingly, the Romans were back in control of Antioch, the length of the Danube. They were back to being at least a regional superpower. What an amazing story, and here I am telling it. But those maps, and many others like them, hide the reality of Roman rule. I'm not blaming them. They're trying to simplify a complex story. But I think that image of the empire in 1025 has confused a lot of people. And I think it distorts their understanding of what happened 50 years later when the borders of the empire collapsed. Today, we begin to correct that picture by presenting a more realistic assessment of the state of the Balkans and the position of Byzantium within it. Let's start with the conquest of Bulgaria itself. Remember that the Romans did not defeat the Bulgarian army in a set-piece battle leaving the whole peninsula trembling at the power of Constantinople. No, even Tsar Samuel's death and four years of penetrative raids by Basil's men was not enough to overturn the Bulgarian state. Instead, it was the sudden death of their new leader that left a power vacuum too big to fill. None of the leading men of Bulgaria felt they had the strength or stature to step in and take over the fight. So instead, one after another, they submitted to Basil. And that submission did not mean becoming the emperor's slave. Basil had to court many of those who held impregnable fortresses, paying them to come down from the mountains and not to sabotage the Roman takeover. Even then, there were some holdouts, and according to our historians, they had to be assassinated by Byzantine agents. 
So it was only by relentless military pressure, some well-placed bribes, and a bit of luck that the Byzantines had been able to conquer Bulgaria. This was more like a corporate merger than the type of blitzkrieg we usually associate with conquest. So, what happens when a large company takes over a smaller one? Often the leading executives of the smaller company are generously rewarded. Announcements go out assuring their employees that nothing major will change under the new regime, and then fixes from the larger company are parachuted into the smaller one to start preparing the ground for the major changes that will of course be coming. As you know, Basil made his way through Bulgaria, accepting the submission of the elites before marching home in triumph. What did he do while he was there? First, he generously rewarded the leading men and women of Bulgaria. The remaining members of the royal family and many senior figures were taken back to Constantinople and put on the payroll. Byzantine brides and husbands were found for the unmarried amongst them, and they were resettled in the capital or Anatolia. This removed the natural leaders of Bulgaria in the kindest possible way. Next, Basil decreed that no major changes would be taking place in the administration of Samuel's state. The Bulgarian church would remain in place and kept free from interference from the patriarch, and taxes would be collected in kind, as they always had been under Samuel. So every year, Bulgarian farmers would hand over corn, millet, and wine instead of cash. And across the land, the majority of those in charge would remain in place. Village headmen, administrators, bishops, magnates, and so on. Of course, there will be a few Romans placed in key positions in the new Bulgaria. Garrisons will be installed in cities and forts throughout the country, and fiscal officers from Constantinople will be arriving shortly to begin assessing your land. But there's really nothing to worry about. It's just business as usual. Jokes aside, this was a pragmatic and sensible settlement. The Bulgarians had been fighting tenaciously for five decades now. They'd moved their entire government hundreds of miles west to stay out of the clutches of the empire, so there was no point in provoking further resistance. Basil didn't have to think too hard about this strategy either. As we saw in the east, the emperor was more than happy for local warlords to defend and administer Roman provinces, even Monophysites or Muslims were welcome to do the job if it kept the peace and kept costs down. That's a point we'll return to time and again during this end-of-the-century tour. The conquests of the 10th century were designed to protect Romania, not really to expand it. Very little effort was made to turn the new lands into truly Roman territory. In most cases, it was just assumed that local affairs would continue on as before. Basil had been willing to make peace with Samuel, but in the end the Bulgarians were so recalcitrant 
that conquest became the most reliable method of ending hostilities. So the hostile takeover was complete. Bulgaria had been annexed. What did that look like? I've put up a new map on the website and social media for reference, and I think it will be really helpful to you to take a look. It's unlike any other map you'll see uh, regarding this period. Let's start out from Constantinople and head up to the Danube, since this is the area that we're most familiar with. Uh, After all, up until 971, the centre of Bulgaria was here, just north of the Hemus Mountains. But first, the Rus and then John Zemiskis swept through, putting a temporary end to the Bulgarian state. That, by the way, was far more like the type of blitzkrieg victory that we tend to associate with conquest. As you know, back then, Byzantine garrisons were installed, then Samuel turfed them out, and then they were reinstalled by Basil around the turn of the century. Working our way north, we first come to the Hemus Range itself. Now that the Romans had moved their border to the Danube, they largely abandoned direct control of the mountain passes, which had for so long been the key to conflicts with the Bulgarians. The passes were now in the hands of the local people who lived in the mountains. And this is the first time I can remember the historians I read referring to Vlak people living here, meaning those who spoke a language descended from the vulgar Latin which provincial Romans spoke during Justinian's day and before. Debates about ethnicity are not our concern today. The important point to make is that there was not a homogenous Bulgarian population living throughout the Balkans. The patchwork landscape of mountain, valley and forest allowed local communities to avoid being fully absorbed into the mainstream. The Roman authorities would often have to negotiate with groups like this, either accepting some nominal payment to leave them alone or just ignoring them because trying to bring them into the tax system was too complicated. Beyond the mountains, we come to the heartlands of the old Bulgarian state. Good farmland controlled by cities like Preslav and Pliska. The largest concentration of Roman troops and administrators was at the old capital of Preslav, I've occasionally talked about the lead seals which are found at Byzantine sites. They were used to seal letters, and while the paper has disintegrated, the lead has survived. During an excavation, over 700 seals were found in just one building in Preslav. Beyond that area is a flat, open expanse of land leading in the very northeast to the Dobruja, grasslands which resemble the steppe more than the farmland to the south. This area has been raided and trampled on so often across the centuries that there weren't many settled communities at all. Instead, herding was the main occupation, with markets to the north and south keen for animal products. Finally, then, we reach the river. As you know, Zimiskis had built naval bases along the mouth of the Danube after 
his conquest. The prime concern then was to prevent the Rus from returning. The Northmen's skill with ships really frightened the Romans. But 50 years on, Basil and his successors concluded that the Rus were no longer a threat in this direction. Since fleets were very expensive to maintain, military patrols of the Danube had been abandoned. Naval bases were converted into fortresses and more markets were opened to facilitate exchange with the northern peoples. I've only marked a few on the map. We actually know of several more of these emporia, suggesting that Hungarians, Pechenegs, Rus, and many others were all keen to get their hands on Roman goods. Troops were stationed at places like Dristra and Dinogetia, but they weren't really there to deal with an actual invasion. We're probably talking about a few hundred men to keep the peace. As I mentioned last time, when the Pechenegs cross the river in a few years' time, the troops in place will prove completely inadequate to the task. This might sound like a worrying lack of foresight on the part of the Romans, which to some extent it was, but with the Rus converted to Christianity and their rights to trade at Constantinople assured, it was felt that no serious attack would come to the Danube. The last major crossing by nomadic people was the Bulgars themselves back in the late 7th century. With our bird's-eye view of history, we can see the potential danger, but for the Romans of the day, it seemed an expensive waste to occupy an area that hadn't been the source of serious migration for 350 years. So, north of the Hemus, we see a very light Roman occupation. On my map, I've marked in bold red where there would have been significant concentrations of imperial troops during the 11th century. Back in Thrace, you can see that garrisons at Adrianople and Philippopolis were in place to protect the capital. But beyond the Hemus, there was very little in the way of military presence. Only the garrison at Preslav would have been significant. Beyond that, just a dozen forts or so were occupied to keep an eye on things. Otherwise, the local populations carried on their lives much as they had done before. Returning to Constantinople, let's move west along the Via Ignatia. I've put up a couple of other maps on the website to give you more details about the region, and one of them shows this road. We hug the coast as we move along to Thessaloniki, and then we enter the heart of what was Samuel's state, snaking through the Macedonian mountains via Lake Orid, before finally ending our journey at Dyrrhachium. The trade which travelled along this road had helped to fund Samuel's army, while the craggy mountains had kept them safe from Roman attack. It was here, naturally, that Basil had to leave the largest number of occupying troops. The two major garrisons were at Skopje and Nis, uh, though both Dyrrhachium and Thessaloniki would have had their own contingents. Many other forts were also occupied, and Roman engineers were called in to pull down some of the more impregnable sites 
and construct new ones. More on that in a moment. While Basil was still alive, the Stratikos at Skopje was essentially the governor of Bulgaria. He had both civil and military authority over the region and was tasked with maintaining the peace. Further south, Ohrid would remain the cultural capital of Bulgaria. This is where the archbishop lived and where religious and language schools operated. It was also a key stopping point on the Via Ignatia and so a vital node for trade and communication. Basil was eager not to disrupt the economy here. One of the announcements he made as he marched through was that any Romans who had been forcibly relocated during the war were welcome to stay. If they'd found happiness in their new homes, then keep them. This was the region where a rebellion was most likely to begin, and so we can assume that several thousand troops were spread across the various garrisons, But it's worth saying that rebellion will break out here not too long after we resume our narrative, and the troops in place won't be able to snuff it out. So again, we're looking at a relatively small occupation. I doubt any one site had as many as the 4,000 troops stationed permanently at Antioch. The government would have seen no need for such a large force, Remember that the Bulgarian war dragged on for so long, not because of pitched battles, but because of guerrilla tactics. The key to the occupation was control of the mountain passes and fortresses. And despite the coming rebellion, the Romans will be here until the 1180s, so they knew what they were doing. Speaking of mountain passes... The annexation of Bulgaria had not actually delivered the whole region to the Romans. The Zygos Mountains, to the west of Orid and Skopje, were not in imperial hands. Again, local people, possibly Albanians and certainly Serbians, had made their homes here. They were no threat to Roman rule on their own, but the authorities were well aware of their ability to disrupt trade or assist Bulgarian rebels. So, during the course of the 11th century, the Romans built or occupied a series of watchtowers along the line of the mountains. They wanted to control access to their new territory and manage relations with their independent neighbours. I've marked these watchposts on the map, This included, by the way, passes which the Romans used to get to Dyrrhachium on the coast. This is where those maps of the empire are really misleading. Yes, the Romans were in charge and clearly the dominant power in the region, but they didn't have the resources to command every path through their own lands. So it would be foolish to believe that the shading on a map truly represents control. Moving northwest across the Zygos, we enter the lands of the Serbs and Croats. This area slipped from Roman control during Heraclius' day and has never come back. The Byzantines hold a few islands and coastal enclaves, as we saw in our episode about Venice. 
but the interior has been in the hands of Slavic people for centuries. They'd long been Christians as well, and the Serbs were adopting the Slavonic liturgy developed in Bulgaria. Modern maps tend to simplify the political situation in this region by simply labelling areas as Serbia and Croatia. That is helpful in a broad linguistic and cultural sense, but not in the realm of politics. I've posted yet another map that zeroes in on the different communities that lived here. You don't need to know the details, but it's important to remember that just because a map says the Kingdom of Croatia, you shouldn't imagine a place where everyone is happily united obediently under one king. Just as we saw in the emerging Hungarian kingdom, many independent leaders still existed who the central authorities had to contend with. Lots of maps you'll see show Serbia as a Roman protectorate, and some go further adding Croatia to that sphere of influence too. The reason they do this is that we have evidence of many Serb and Croat leaders who were given Roman titles and salaries. As has been imperial policy in Italy, Armenia and Syria, the best way to handle foreign nations is to bring them into the system of rewards that keep men loyal to Constantinople. In this case, local Croatian or Serbian leaders met with Roman representatives, often receiving baptism and then took home their cash and prizes. The state directly across the mountains from Skopje was the Serbian fiefdom of Dukja, and ceremonies involving their leading men are regularly recorded. But beyond that, all we have are a few scattered references to other notables who received similar awards. The titles and cash were welcomed, but they gave Constantinople no actual control over these people and their affairs. Even maps suggesting that Dukia was a Roman protectorate are unhelpful. That may have been the theoretical arrangement in the years after the conquest, but the political reality was quite different. In the East, for example, we saw Aleppo had become a genuine protectorate for a while, when Roman armies could march to its gates to enforce the agreement. But on the borders of Serbia, Byzantine troops stayed well away from the dangerous mountain passes. Despite the regular gift-giving ceremonies, the authorities in Dyrrhachium will constantly deal with threats from local people during the 11th century. One famous story sees an imperial vessel that is shipwrecked on the Serbian coast. Inside was enough cash to pay a Roman garrison. The money was pocketed by the local Serb ruler, and he refused to return it, despite a personal letter from the emperor. All of this to say that maps implying that the Eastern Balkans were a Roman province, fully under the control of Constantinople, misunderstand reality. The Romans were at the top of the pyramid, but beneath them were a cavalcade of independent groups whose mountainous locale guaranteed their independence. 
it is worth saying that partly what has misled cartographers is the impression given by the Romans themselves. In court propaganda, the lands beyond their control were not written about as if they were independent. The whole of the Balkans had once been Roman, and that ideal was not to be abandoned. So it was simpler to declare that those areas were being held by local officials with the approval of Constantinople. And look, here is their title and salary on the books to prove it. Moving north from Skopje, we follow the long Velika Moreva river valley to Nis. This was essentially the end of the Roman military presence in the region. A garrison would remain here to watch over approaches from the north and west. You'll also notice on my map that beyond the watchtowers of the Zygos, I've marked a section with a line saying forest. Now the Balkans were thick with forests, not just in this particular corridor. However, this area of particularly dense woodland running along the edge of the mountains is another reason why Roman control did not extend into Serbia and Croatia, and why no significant imperial garrisons were placed on the Danube in this region. Shortly after the conquest of Bulgaria, Roman historians tell us that one of Basil's generals murdered the local ruler of Sirmium and captured it for the empire. Throughout Roman history, Sirmium, because of its unique position on the Danube, had been a key location for controlling the Balkans. Basil ordered engineers in to secure its fortifications and those of neighbouring towns, including Belgrade. However, not long after the emperor's death, the Romans withdrew. They surrendered military control to local warlords. Presumably they kept these men on the payroll and trusted them to allow trade to flow. But the reality is that no significant military presence was maintained here. This makes a lie of all those maps which proudly indicate a theme of Sirmium occupying the river and the lands leading down to Nis. Now this might sound bizarre. Why would the Romans abandon such a strategically valuable location? The logic, it seems, was the same which governed their withdrawal from the mouth of the Danube. The Hungarians across the river had no fleet, nor any great motivation to cross over. Inland, there wasn't much wealth to support an occupying force, and the thick forest provided cover from raids coming by land. So, what was the point of going to the expense of maintaining a garrison? Now, as we'll see when the narrative resumes, some of this pressure may have come from the crossing of the Pechenegs or the Bulgarian Rebellion. But the decision stuck. No Roman troops seemed to have returned. Doubtless traders and administrators were active along the river. Uh, one of the maps shows a highway linking Belgrade with the Via Ignatia. But a really accurate map would not include this area as being fully part of the empire. All that remains of the Balkans are the areas in the south, 
Greece and Thrace, both culturally Roman and firmly a part of the empire. What we've seen today is that the Balkans was a patchwork landscape of different ways of living shared by different communities. The empire had extended its control over large parts of it, but had not turned any new land into genuinely imperial territory. In our next episode, I'll explore that idea further. Did the Romans have any plans to convert Bulgarians into Romans? And what about money? So far, the taxes of the conquered are merely feeding the garrisons living amongst them. When will that turn into cash and therefore profit for Constantinople? To wrap things up today, it's worth reiterating the light nature of the physical occupation. I think this suggests three things. One is positive. The Romans had a good understanding of what was needed to hold the new provinces. Garrisoning strong points and paying the locals was effective and far more economical than leaving huge armies in place. Number two, though, is that it seems the Romans didn't have that many troops to spare, in part because, number three, they didn't have the money or the political will to expand their army in line with their expanded borders. It's these realities that we need to explore over these end-of-the-century episodes. To return to something I said earlier, the annexation of Bulgaria was not completed because the Romans wanted living space or had any grand plans for recolonizing the Balkans. The conquest was made because the Bulgarians wouldn't make peace. They kept attacking Roman settlements, so when Basil had an opportunity to overthrow them, he did. His goal was to make Romania safe. And I say Romania because his epitaph describes him as guarding the children of New Rome. In other words, making the Balkans safe for already Roman people. Nowhere did he declare his intention was to turn Bulgarians into Romans. Hence, the nature of the occupation was light. Control to maintain the peace. Constantinople did not yet have a vision for much more than that. Next time, we'll delve deeper into the cultural differences between Bulgarians and Romans and explore what that means for the future of the Balkans. Fantastic news on the Kickstarter front. We have reached our initial goal, which means the trip has been funded and will go ahead. Yay! Uh, but you still have time to get your pledges in so that you can see the videos or have your voice on the podcast or to listen to the bonus episodes on the House of War. For anyone who has pledged, by the way, if you want to up your pledge, I'm not saying this from purely for my own benefit. Uh, a couple of people have asked me. You can change your pledge. You could downgrade your pledge. Uh, you can still do that until the end of the month. Just uh, go back, log into Kickstarter, and you should be able to find that option. Anyway, for those listening who haven't decided to pledge, please give it some thought. The more videos I can make, uh, the more immersed 
we can all become in Byzantium. If you have any questions for me about the Kickstarter or anything for that matter, then I'll be doing an Ask Me Anything on March the 21st for the website What Pods. You don't need to be there live to submit a question. You can send it in now. Follow the links on the website or social media and you can ask me whatever you like. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 